0: On this episode of the Grant Williams Podcast, with Vladimir Putin edging seemingly closer by the day to some kind of incursion into Ukraine, I took the opportunity to speak to my great mate, Simon Mikhailovich, a man who, thanks to his own personal background, more than anybody, has helped me understand both Putin the man and Mother Russia better. Simon's balanced perspective is exactly what's needed at a time like this, when the flames of propaganda are being fanned in just about every mainstream Western media outlet. So if you'd like a little dose of sanity... Please enjoy my conversation with Simon Mikanovich. Simon, my old friend, how are you? It's been way, way, way too long since you and I have seen each other, God forbid, let alone spoken to each other.
1: I know. This this plague has just been going too long. So hopefully it'll end soon and we'll be able to... uh... Play around like or get get together like we always do.
0: Oh, wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that be fun? Well, listen, I, I I'm so pleased that we got a chance to talk. Um, and thanks for doing this on on short notice. But there are just so many things going on right now that you have such a great perspective on, uh, given your background, given the, the things that you talk about, the things that you invest in. And so I thought this is a perfect chance for you and I to talk about all those. And, and particularly given the piece that you put out in December quite recently, as it as it turned out. So we'll, we'll, but Before we, we come to that, most of the people listening to this will know who you are and, and, and what your background is, but there will be some, I'm sure, that maybe don't know. So if you can just give us that potted history quickly, just so that they can understand the perspective you have on what we're about to talk about. I think it might just help a few people.
1: Sure. Uh, I grew up in the Soviet Union. I was born there. I was 19 when I left in 1978 uh, as a refugee, uh, escaped to Western Europe, and from there made my way to the United States. I studied engineering for two years in college in the Soviet Union, so I have a bit of background in that. When I came to the U.S., I got a degree, a bachelor's degree from Johns Hopkins in political science. I've always been a student of history, particularly of Russian history. I Obviously, Russian is my first language, and I follow what's going on there. Uh, Russian state has not dealt kindly with me, so I take a bit of a dim view of, of the power structure there. But nevertheless, I am not an expert on Russia. I am not an expert on geopolitics. I am a, uh, I guess, a more competent observer because I can speak both languages and I can hear, and I do follow what, what is being said in Russia, both by the, uh, in Russian, both by official uh, government spokes- spokespeople and by anti-Putin, uh, media, which is quite robust in Russia, may surprise some people. Yeah, um, yeah, oh yeah. There, there's, there's there are plenty of uh, there are plenty of pundits uh, and, and uh, both in Russian and Russian speaking in Ukraine uh, who are um, putting out material about what's going on and, and their opinions. And then, of course, for the past forty years, I've been in the investment business first in uh, credit and workouts and lending, uh, I mean, private lending, and then uh, credit derivatives, including CDOs and mortgages from the short side, from the long side. And then uh, in uh, 2011, uh, or 2014, I should say, uh, on a full-time basis, I've transitioned my business to uh, focusing on gold because of my view of the prospects of the tax Americana, as as it's called, so uh, the uh, status quo dominated by the U.S. dollar and and, uh, the United States, and uh, the sustainability of our financial system, our financial arrangements, our currency. So that's the perspective from which I'm coming. So it's 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 professionally investment perspective, but from uh, my personal, because my personal background, I have some insights into what's uh, going on, particularly in Eastern Europe and Russia, and between. Russia and the
0: United States. Perfect. Well, that's an excellent background for, for anyone that's not familiar with with you and your story. Now, let's start and talk about this piece you put out in December, because you and I, about the same time, quite coincidentally, both wrote pieces about um, about Vladimir Putin from slightly different angles. So, talk about what you saw happening and what the ideas you wanted to get across to to your investors at, at that point in time.
1: Absolutely. Let me just take five minutes or three minutes or however long it takes. uh, First, All the time you want, mate. It's our
0: show. We can talk as long as we want.
1: Perfect. So what's important here, I think, is, is a bit of historical perspective. All of us, by all of us, I mean everybody who is alive today. I should say nobody who is alive today has seen as an adult a world where the United States was not a unitary superpower when it comes to economics and finance. Uh, what I mean by that is that whilst after World War II there were two superpowers from a political uh, or from geopolitical and military point of view, the Soviet Union and the United States, the results of World War II have conclusively placed the United States as the sole hegemonic superpower in the area of finance and economy and trade. In a sense that the United States dollar has become has by that time completely displaced the British pound. As the global reserve currency, it was initially based, uh, you know, based on the uh, Bretton Woods agreements right after World War II. Uh, it was initially backed by gold, but uh, when the United States went off the gold standard, which is essentially was a U.S. default in 1971, nothing happened because the power of the United States and the preeminence of the United States in the global economic sphere was unchallengeable and absolute. And so, there really was absolutely no alternative and no challenger. The Soviet Union, what's important to understand, the Soviet Union was never a part of the global financial system, was not really a part of the global economy in any meaningful way. So in that sense, that confrontation was at a different plane than economics and money. So the reason I'm saying that is because we've all grown up, lived, operated, invested, saved, traded in a paradigm, global paradigm. Where the United States was the preeminent player, unassailably so, the United States dollar was unassailably the the currency of the you know global currency in which most international trade or all international trade is, is settled. Uh, the petrodollar system was such that energy had to be paid or has to be paid uh, with dollars, which creates demand for dollars, which creates the deepest, uh, broadest, widest financial markets in the world uh, in the US dollar. And so it is very difficult for anybody who is alive today and has had this experience for basically their entire life to conceive of a different paradigm. We see this on Twitter all the time where people say, well, there's no, other, there's no alternative. You yeah, know, yeah. Even if China takes over whatever uh, you know, becomes uh, the uh, periposal superpower to the United States, there's just no alternative to the dollar. That feels like, I'm sure it felt like that to Winston Churchill in the 1920s and 30s in respect to the, to the British pound. Of course, London, you know, that was the financial markets, that was global. You know, New York was coming up, but that was still a, a sort of provincial, a little bit still, you know, backwater and so forth. So I wanted to start with that because I, wanna, I want people to have a sense that what we're talking about is not something esoteric geopolitical discussion about events that are happening in countries which have no relevance to uh, a Western investor, consumer person, that this is happening like sort of Iraq or whatever, Afghanistan is happening somewhere else. What's happening now, I believe, has direct bearing on the financial position of the United States, on the prospects of the US financial system, uh, sustainability of the US financial system, and the preeminence of the uh, US dollar as a reserve currency, where the United States has used this position to essentially exert geopolitical control on its adversaries through the financial system. I mean we keep hearing threats against Russia that is going to get, get cut out of Swift, you know arrest uh, Western uh, held uh, assets you know uh, of Russian oligarchs or of Russian president himself and so forth and so on. All of this arises out of this position, uh, first of all weaponization of the dollar as the uh, tool of geopolitical uh, power projection. And it arises out of the fact that the United States has come to control the global financial system because without using the dollar, no international bank can operate. And because all dollar transactions clear through Federal Reserve, ultimately, the United States has exerted uh, jurisdiction or projected its jurisdiction, essentially, on all financial transactions around the world. So when we're talking about what we're about to talk about... uh, all of this is currently, I believe, under threat. I don't know what degree of risk it is, we will talk about that, but I think it's the risk is very high, and something is going to happen. I just don't know what, and I don't think anybody knows what, but something is going to happen, and it looks like the timing of that is soon. But when you wrote your piece, uh, when was that, December, I think, uh, or late
0: November. In November. November, yeah.
1: In November, right. Uh, and I read it, and and then um, and, and your piece was prompted by Putin's speech uh, at uh, at a uh, think tank, Vladai yep. Forum, right? Yeah. Um, that I, I immediately thought was probably the most important geopolitical speech of well, as far as I remember, and you kind of expressed that. And at that point, I said, "Well, I have to issue some comment to that," since you broke the. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I did. And so what, what I wanted to do in that piece is I wanted to put some perspective on what is happening, some historical perspective. And I feel that if you don't understand where this is coming from, you may think that this is, you know, Putin's government is making trouble and leave it at that. And maybe this is all uh, posturing and, um, you know, has to do with his personality. And if we replace him, that's all going to change. So I'd like to start with a little bit of background, historical background now, and and then we can move into what is actually going on. So first of all, it's important to understand that the Russian empire was the second or third largest empire in the world prior to World War I, Uh, that the British empire at the time was the largest empire the world has ever seen, had ever seen. At one point at its peak, which was probably the beginning of the uh, uh, 20th century, every fourth, I think, person in the world was a uh, subject of, of the British monarch, 24%, 25%. Yeah. Also, 24%, 25% of land mass uh, was governed from London. And Russia, I think, covered like 16% or something. And so clearly, for reasons that are obvious, there was a tremendous rivalry between the top empire or top you know, a superpower at the time UK and the adjacent superpower, uh, that was Russia. So then, so the first I'd like to start with, with explaining that countries don't have friends, countries have interests. So whether we like this government or that government, uh, or like this regime or that regime, uh, it's important for us to step back and to understand what are the national interests. So uh, Britain had a prime minister uh, whose name was Lord Palmerston. Uh, he was a three times foreign secretary and twice the prime minister uh, between, say, 1835 and 1865, essentially at the height of the British Empire. So with that in mind, so uh, what did Palmerston have to say about national interests and, and friendly relations with other nations? And what he had to say about that, it's a famous line that de Gaulle once used by uh, when he said that uh, countries don't have friends, only interests. Uh, what he said was, we have no eternal allies, and we have no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual, and those interests, it has our duty to follow. So what did Palmerston think in the 1850s, where perpetual interests of the British Empire and of the Western alliance, as it stood at the time with France and, and other, uh, some other European nations, uh, vis-a-vis Russia? So this is what he had to say about Russia. The best and the most effectual security for the future peace of Europe would be the severance from Russia of some of the frontier territories acquired by her in later times, Georgia, Chechnya, uh, the Crimea, Moldova, which is lands directly to the west of Ukraine, Poland, and Finland, which included the Baltic states at the time. So this is what he, th- this is what he thought in the 1850s were permanent, perpetual interests of the West vis-a-vis the Russian Empire. Now, Putin was not president at the time. Nicholas I was the czar at the time. And this is what the Western hegemonic empire of the time thought. So notice, what's going on with Russia right now, the ultimatum that Russia had made is basically about Georgia, Crimea, and Ukraine, and Poland, and, and, and everything we're talking about right here. So. That is the first thing when I saw that, I was like, okay, so this is a game that's been going on forever. There's nothing new under the sun, as I like to say, and it's, it's written in the Bible. This is not about Putin. This is not about anything. This is about Russian empire versus the whatever the representative of the Western collective empires, you know, the leader of the West is at the time, so East-West, this is as old as the hills. The other important insight here comes also from the UK, and this is from Winston Churchill. A hundred years later, after Palmerston, or almost a hundred years later, in 1939, two weeks before World War, before uh, Hitler attacked Poland, uh, the Soviet Union had signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler. And uh, as Hitler attacked Poland uh, on September 1, 1939, on September 17th, which is two weeks later, basically, uh, the Soviet troops uh, attacked Poland from the east. Uh, occupied half the country. Well, we we have since learned that that was the deal that they made with Hitler at the time. And of course, since both England and France had joined Poland immediately and declared war on Hitler, the question immediately arose, which, you know, so on which side is, is, is the Soviet Union? I mean, are they going to be fighting with Hitler now that they've signed this agreement? And uh, Winston Churchill, on uh, 19... Uh, this is uh, October 1st, 1939, made the speech short speech, where he said the following. Many people know this quote. It's about Russia being enigma wrapped in a mystery or whatever. But they've, they've heard that, but they haven't read the rest of the quote, which is very interesting. So this is what he said two weeks after Soviet troops invaded Poland and divided essentially Poland with the Nazis. I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But perhaps there is a key. That key is Russian national interest. It cannot be in accordance with the interest of the safety of Russia that Germany, you can insert NATO in there if you want right now, should plant itself upon the shores of the Black Sea, or that it should overrun the Balkan states and subjugate the Slavonic people of Southeastern Europe. Ukraine is Southeastern Europe. Yeah. And Moldova is Southeastern Europe. That would be contrary to the historic life interests of Russia. And with that, He went on to say that at the risk of being proven wrong by events, that Russia is going to fight Germany, that they're not going to be allies with Hitler. Correctly, of course. So one thing interesting about this quote is that he is not referring to Stalin, and he is not referring to the Soviet Union, which was the name of that country at the time. He is referring to Russia, because he is a student of geopolitics, new, just as Palmerston did. There are perpetual national interests, and whether the communists are in power and the you know running the Russian Empire or the czars are running the Russian Empire, Russian national interests are no different for that. Yeah, yeah, and th- and therefore, right, and therefore he correctly assessed it. So the reason I think it's important to understand this is because when we assess what's going on, it's important to place it in the context of what happened in 1990 or 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed. What happened after that, and what place do current events have? or how they are based on what we have lived through for the past 30 years. Now, the winners usually don't care about dramatic events because, you know, they benefit from them and they win. It's the losers who get to eat crow. So we have been the winners. And so, therefore, for us, this has all been just all a wonderful thing. But for Russia, it has not been a wonderful thing. Because the Soviet Union, essentially, the Soviet plan, centrally planned system, this is also relevant to where we are right now, has lasted, as I calculated lately, for about sixty-two years, from nineteen twenty-nine, which is twenty-eight, twenty-nine, which is when the new economic policy, which was essentially a reintroduction of, of free enterprise by uh, Lenin to restore the economy, uh, was rolled up. After forty years, they went into stagnation in the seventies, and after fifty years, they went into Great Depression in the eighties, which culminated in in the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union. The financial system, uh, hyperinflation of the ruble, uh, life expectancy of males dropped from uh, 70 to 57. So, those were the consequences for Russia. NATO used that opportunity uh, to advance NATO uh, influence. And it's important to remember that NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, was formed to oppose the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. So, it wasn't just like some uh, band of brothers. Just collective security arrangement. I mean, that was an offensive uh, alliance, defensive slash offensive alliance, to stand against a threat that uh, the, the communist Russia at that time posed uh, to the West post World War II. The world order was set in the Yalta Conference between uh, Roosevelt, Stalin, and uh, Churchill. And that is the world order that has prevailed until the collapse of the Soviet Union. Also important to remember that the Soviet Union, while it collapsed under the pressure from the West uh, and military spending and so forth, it, it didn't collapse as a result of a war. It sort of self liquidated in some way. The reason it's important to, to remember is because the feeling on the Russian side well, it is now that Russia sort of laid down its arms, or the Soviet Union laid down its arms, and instead of being embraced by the West, uh, that was taken as an opportunity to encroach on Russia's sphere of influence, imperial, centuries old, as we just heard, spheres of influence. By, by the way, when I read these quotes from Palmerston, I mean, people should remember that Palmerston was the uh, the leader who uh, started Crimean War, which was the attempt by uh, yep. Britain, France, and, and uh, the Ottoman Empire, which is also relevant in light of what's going on in Kazakhstan, where Turkey is involved. to to implement his vision uh, by taking those areas that uh, he thought should be taken. Uh, That war was won, but uh, no land was gained, and there was a treaty with Russia that sort of settled things. Uh, The other thing it's important to remember about Palmerston is he, he, he supported the South in the Civil War of the United States for exactly the same reason, not because he liked slavery. He actually did not like slavery. He supported the South because he wanted the United States broken up. He envisioned the United States correctly, as the ultimate uh, challenger, along with Russia, to the British Empire, and so he wanted weakened and taken apart. So he was a he, he was a visionary, uh, a nationalist, the British nationalist, uh, who envisioned all these things. And, and what's what's incredible is you read a little bit; you don't have to study this history. You just can you know get some of this from Wikipedia. It's all it's all pretty uh, pretty straightforward. Is that he envisioned these um, moves that hundred. 150 years later, are are just playing out exactly as as he envisioned them. Uh, And so this is very important. It's very important because we are living through a geopolitical pivot of of historic significance. This is not a political tiff between this administration and that administration. This is not a political disagreement or geopolitical uh, catfight because of some ideological disagreements. This is life long, centuries long processes that are swinging from side to side. So the pendulum swung to one side, and now Russia, led by Putin's government. Uh, but it's just, an, you can think of it as a nationalist Russian government. The, he happens to be the leader, but I, I, I personally don't feel that it would have been somebody else. You know, he used to be Stalin, used to be Nicholas, and then Alexander, and whatever the Russian czars were named, uh, and they all conducted the same policies. So rather than seeing the last thirty years as the end of history, as famously uh, you know was proposed by Fukuyama, uh, this was actually an intermezzo. That's all it was, and I believe that we have arrived at the end of that intermezzo, and we are now into the next leg of this game, which for reasons I started with the position of the US dollar is being challenged. It's being challenged by Russia and China. I'm not gonna speak about China because I'm not an expert on China. I I read everything everybody else reads and I sort of follow what's going on there, but I don't speak the language and I don't have an ability to follow it in the same way I I, I follow Russia. But as I said to you before we started, you can think of this alliance, which they just uh, cemented in this, uh, literally two or three months ago in the talks between Xi and, and Putin, as uh, I guess Russia is acting here as the War Department and Chinese are acting as the Ministry of Finance and Economy uh, of the Eurasian or uh, whatever, this, this Pan-Eurasian right. alliance. Right. form. So now this brings us to now. So why are we talking about this now? The reason we're talking about this now is in 2007, Putin has made a speech where he laid out his vision for returning to the multipolar world. Now, in 2007, uh, it was early. It was followed very quickly by a crisis that uh, delayed everything uh, by quite a bit. Russia was laid low, so was the United States, so had been the United States and Western Europe. But the Russians are back. And so I took that speech that you wrote about and that I now wrote about as a signal from Moscow that they are ready to proceed, by which I mean uh, that weeks after that speech was uh, delivered, Uh, Xi and Putin had a summit where they came out and they said that they have a friendship that's bigger than friendship. I I don't know what that means, but, you know, super special relationship Uh, that uh, China fully supported ambitions of Russia to return no less to the pre-1997 status quo. Now, 90, The relevance of 97 is between 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed and 95, 96, 97, NATO didn't do anything. But in 97, it right. started expanding eastward. So they want the return to the world of Yalta. They want, they're demanding, they, they don't want. They're demanding. They're making ultimatums. Are they serious? I, I don't know. but. I mean, based on what I read and what I hear from that side in in Russian, in in the Russian media, government media, they sound very serious. And they just don't come across to me as kind of people that would make these kinds of threats without having some plan, because there's no way that the United States, and as we saw in these talks this week, I mean, clearly they were sent packing with nothing, the Russians said it. Um, The United States, ha, 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 yeah, okay, fine, we're happy to talk about this and that, but we're not certainly talking about any of that, Um, meaning we're not withdrawing from Eastern Europe, we're not withdrawing from Ukraine, uh, you know, whatever. So my feeling about it is that this is a very, very dangerous moment. This is as dangerous as the 1930s. I don't think that there's a danger of nuclear war because uh, simply nuclear weapons have rendered that type of war not feasible. For, for all sides. And you can see how the United States rushed, uh, in the Security Council, just rushed to obtain from the nuclear powers this commitment that there will not be a nuclear war, God forbid, just for everybody to declare, why, like, why not? Like, why after all this time right. are they doing this? So obviously, that's a concern. So I don't think from what I'm hearing from Russia, I don't think there's any, well, I would say there's, there's always a possibility, but I don't think that's the risk. Well, and that brings us to finance. I mean, the risk here is that the United States, I believe, is in a significantly weakened financial position. I mean, we're running massive deficits. We're bought, we're printing huge amounts of money. We are supporting the markets, uh, both both U.S. markets and Western markets, through these, military, uh, these uh, monetary these monetary missions and through quantitative easing and whatever. The Fed is saying that they will tighten. I don't know. I I tweeted the other day. You know present value formula of a perpetuity. When rates double, present value has. So doubling rates from 1.5% to 3%. Now, what's the relevance of the present value of a perpetuity? A stock is a perpetuity. It's a perpetuity with growth. So the way right. you, you would, yeah, I mean, there are, there are different ways how stock prices are calculated, obviously, and it's a supply and demand. But underpinning it is some expectation of return and based on whatever return you expect and whatever cash flows you expect this is what you're willing to pay today well okay so if the demanded return doubles then what you're willing to pay potentially halves and at these low rates i mean that's not a stretch so so i think that this geopolitical crisis that's unfolding with china again we're not i'm not going into there but i'm not adding that to the conversation but that's a huge component of that, but maybe even a bigger component than Russia. But Russia is clearly on the front line of this. What the Russians are going to do, I don't know. But what we know about both Russia and China have accumulated vast gold reserves. The reason they've accumulated these vast gold reserves and continue to accumulate is because they see gold as an alternative to the U.S. dollar. It, it, the correct criticism, probably, or correct opinion, uh, but I, I wouldn't rely too much on that, is is that well? You know who's going to want? Okay, fine. So they're going to challenge the U.S. dollar. But who's going to want to give money, put money into yuan? Or who's going to put money into Russian rubles? Yeah, fair enough. Nobody's putting money into yuan or Russian rubles. But how about a gold ruble or a gold yuan? Well, maybe not Americans, but how about Venezuelans? Or how about Africa? How about you know a lot of third world countries? How about some of the petroleum producing countries that are getting paid dollars uh, that are being printed? out of nowhere for oil that they're extracting out of you know their ground that's real asset. You know they're selling real assets for essentially candy wrappers uh, in some sense, in, in a macro sort of uh, long-term sense. Of course you can they're valuable today, and you can buy whatever you want today. But strategically, if you're accumulating reserves, you're essentially accumulating reserves in the paper that's being debased through through uh, proliferation. So so that's that's why I think it's very, very important for investors to pay acute attention to what's going on in Russia with these talks. The Russians have said very clearly, the West is not hearing us. We are asking you to please hear us. We're very serious. Our concerns are urgent. We are not going away. We will deploy as they quote unquote, military-technical means, if our concerns are not addressed. Not just addressed, legally in writing, signed, sealed, and delivered. Not any kind of promises or words, concretely, through international treaties. So I don't particularly see that happening, certainly not without some push from the Russian side to explain how serious it is. Well, and that's very dangerous. I mean, that—that's the dangerous part. I mean, if the Russians have to do something, and I don't know what they're going to do. Now, it pays to remember here the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, What everybody remembers from the Missile Crisis uh, is that uh, the Soviet Union put rockets in Cuba, and then uh, in response to that, uh, the Kennedy administration threatened nuclear war, and the Russians removed their rockets. That's not the entire story. The Russians removed their rockets, but What is not reported as widely is that the United States removed its rockets from Turkey. So that was uh, ostensibly a cave, if you will, uh, by the Soviet Union. But in reality, it was a quid pro quo. So what kind of a quid pro quo uh, is achieved here? Also overlay all that. The United States is essentially negotiating with Russia about the fate of Europe without Europeans sitting at the table. (laughs) <laughs> which is driving all kinds of wedges into the, into the transatlantic alliance. I mean, in here, you know, the, France is, 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 and the British are saying all kinds of things. So the latest development, since I put that letter out in whatever was late December, is that first thing in January, we woke up to an attempted color revolution in Kazakhstan, which was swiftly uh, suppressed. You know, all we know about Kazakhstan is Borat, right? That's it.
0: Borat. That's it. He's our frame Borat. of reference.
1: Here's, a, here's, a, here's our frame of reference for Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is a country of 19 million people, sort of like Canada. It's the, I think, sixth largest country in the world. It has the longest land border with, it, it, between Russia and Kazakhstan, is the longest border between anybody. It's 7,500 kilometers, like 4,600 miles. Yeah. yeah, It's massive. Uh, it separates Russia from other stands south. Uh, and Afghanistan being one of those stands. Russian Space Center is located in Kazakhstan. Yep. Kazakhstan is a major supplier of oil and gas uh, to Russia, uh, which Russia resells. Um, and so this is a huge, and also 25% of the population is ethnic Russians. And the rest are, and, and the Kazakhstan, Muslim. So, the, so there's the religious element there. So this is a strategically pivotal country for Russia. And of course, well, it's not of course, but you remember I said that the Crimean War was between France, Britain, and the Ottoman Empire. Well, the Ottoman Empire is involved, as it turns out, because Kazakhstan is one of the Turkic countries. uh, And so Turkey's interest here, and President Erdogan's interest, is to uh, establish sort of this pan-Turkic confederation, which Russia, for the same historical reason as it doesn't want The British or the Americans on NATO on its borders doesn't want um, the Turks, Ottoman Empire on its borders either. So so we are dealing with 150, 200, 300 year old enmities that are all back in full force. And we are modern people in the modern world. We don't remember any of that. None of it has happened in our lifetime. And here it is again. And I think it's pretty big. And I think it's very dangerous.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for making my job so easy. I can just sit back and listen to you, which is great. But look, there's, there's tons of stuff in there to unpack. So let's put the financial part of it to one side for now. We'll come back to that because I think I think you're right. That's that's for the people listening to this podcast, for the most part, that's the whole ball of wax. But let but let's just go back to the political situation and and look at Ukraine and look at what Putin's threatening to do. And understand that obviously this is a, a point in time where I, I I had a conversation with Jacob Shapiro recently and he said that uh, Putin is a very good card player who's got a bad hand and the West is a bunch of terrible card players who happen to have good hands and my point I made to him was look give me the good player with the bad hand any day you know you always want the good player. So is is Putin seeing an opportunity here because he is facing down against, you know, a coalition of Joe Biden, Boris Johnson, uh, Justin Trudeau and Scott Morrison? Is this just an opportunity for Putin who, within that grander ambition that you laid out at the beginning of that that wonderful monologue, or is this something different? Because it seems opportunist to me. I have to say I can't blame him for for taking this opportunity as it's presented itself.
1: I'd like to read another quote to you. The policy and practice of the Russian government has always been, always, has always been, to push forward its encroachments as fast and as far as the apathy and want of firmness of other governments would allow it to go, but always to stop and retire when it met with decided resistance and then to wait for the next favorable opportunity has always. And who wrote that? The same Lord Palmerston. Palmerston. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in 1850s, he said it has always been. Well, okay. So this is 2020s. It's not any different. What difference does it make, whether it's because of personalities or because of other factors? Fact of the matter is both China and Russia just watched a completely disastrous withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. They saw, I don't think they were impressed by the fact that the United States lost, so to speak, because they lost there too. They, they knew it wasn't right. winnable. Right. I think they were impressed by the uh, disarray and the lack of uh, coherent uh, strategy or tactic uh, as to how that withdrawal was executed. And both China and Russia perceived tremendous weakness in the resolve of the United States and in the maybe ability in the United States in these conditions to kind of understand, you know, what they're trying to do. I'm also not sure that Russia has a weak hand. I mean, Russia doesn't have $600 toilet seats. You know, <laughs> they have, they, I mean, they, they own military Industry, uh, they have achieved with a their budget. I don't remember the exact numbers. I've looked at it at some point. Their military budget is a fraction of the U.S. military budget, yeah, but their R and D budget actually is 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 comparable to the U.S. R and D budget because the U.S. has a massive Most of the U.S. military budget is spent on maintenance. maintenance I yeah, mean, you know yeah. what it, you know what it costs to fly all these airplanes and to maintain all these bases and all this personnel and. You know, every day sure. a carrier is at sea. I mean, it's, it's zillions of dollars. Russia doesn't have any of those, uh, those kinds. Of, it also has a conscription army, which the United States doesn't have. It doesn't pay salary to the soldiers. So I'm not sure in terms of their technical military capability. It's certainly not like their ability to conduct warfare, you know, on the ground with troops and divisions against Western NATO divisions for a long period of time. But they have developed some asymmetric capabilities uh, in the hypersonic, so has China, in hypersonic weapons, particularly, and certain delivery systems that it appears the United States does not have, and neither does the United States or NATO have uh, technologies at the moment to uh, countervail those. So they are perceiving a moment of opportunity, and this moment of opportunity may be just more than a good player with a bad hand. They may have a decent hand for this moment. I mean that may not be ten years from now, but today they they feel they have, and so has so does China. I mean that you know.
0: Well, look, it's 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 interesting because no no one really knows what Putin wants, but we look at we look at what he's demanding. As you said, and you, and you chose your words carefully. He's demanding these of the West. You know, it, let's assume let's assume that the West is disinterested is spending way too much money on domestic problems, doesn't really want to get into a military conflict with the Russians, and they do make enough concessions that we get a deal here that involves NATO essentially pulling back and, and staying out of Ukraine. What, what happens after that? Because it, it it feels as though a victory like that for someone like Putin, he might pause, you know, he might pause after that for a little while, but it feels as though, to some of those earlier quotes, he will then keep pushing until he meets that dogged resistance or whatever the phrase Palmerston News was. How far do his ambitions extend to the West, do you think?
1: Look, I don't know. I'm not an expert on Putin and I'm not an expert on, on Russian politics, really, domestic. I, mean, I I follow it to the extent that I do, but I, I don't have any inside information. From what I hear, at least what they're saying is, first of all, they're saying they're not interested in invading Ukraine. And as you notice, I mean, they went, they quote unquote invaded Kazakhstan. And by the 19th of January, they're saying they're out. Yeah. So I don't know that they particularly want to occupy anything because they've they've had enough of Afghan experience in late Soviet period, and they just watched the U.S. I mean, it's just it's, it's it's a difficult proposition. See, Crimea was a completely different situation. It's a 95 percent Russian population uh, who actually probably really wanted to wanted Russia to but, take but, but,
0: over i mean eastern ukraine is also very sympathetic to russia they they could they could maybe annex uh, the they, eastern they half may, of ukraine
1: they may well so so the framework that russia is demanding is, is the so-called minsk agreement and the minsk agreements are uh, uh, the, the gist of the minsk agreements was granting to this eastern ukraine a status of the equal uh, administrative sort of like a state within uh, ukraine with the right of veto. And from what, I, from what I hear from, you know, the pundits and, you know, trying to filter all this different noise from all sides, is that the reason for, uh, the desire for that comes from the fact that if uh, Eastern Ukraine has a veto on what Ukrainian government does in Kiev, then there will never be any NATO in Ukraine. Right, right. I don't think they want to occupy that area, but they want to control the Ukrainian foreign policy through other means through a proxy, a republic, you know, Russian-friendly republic, uh, where people speak Russian and have affinity to Russia and so forth.
0: But let, let, let me ask you this, because I've 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 been reading a lot about Putin recently because of that piece and, and obviously because of what's going on. And, and I've been fascinated to read the pieces I have, and there's, there's always a bent to them. You know, you can tell uh, what kind of organisation has written what piece. And so... There are generally two different uh, views of Putin, uh, and only two, it seems. One is he's a gangster, uh, a thug, mm-hmm. and this is all about extending his own personal reach and putting mafia-type governments in all the border states and funneling the cash into his own pocket. That That's essentially the Western narrative. And the other narrative is that he is a statesman who wants to reassert Um, Russia's some would say rightful place given its size and its history um, at the top table of world politics that gangster narrative um, which again for my piece I said let's put this aside right you you, you don't become um, a a lieutenant colonel in the in the in the KGB and then president within a few years of resigning from that what is an upper mid-level position without knowing where a few bodies are buried. So, you know, we can all pretty much put that to one side and say, okay, fine, let's concede that. Now let's look at what he's doing and more importantly, how he's doing it. So, you know, when you read these these very simple caricatures of him as, a, as some kind of, you know, Don Corleone figure, how accurate or otherwise do you think those are?
1: What is that line about being able to hold two conflicting thoughts in, in, in one's mind at the well, same time? I,
0: I always go back to I always go back to Billy Connolly saying that the, the 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 definition of intelligence is being able to is being able to hear the William Tell Overture and not think of the Lone Ranger.
1: Okay, so <laughs> let's, let's use I that. think I I don't know, but I, I feel based on what I hear, and I hear both things. I think they're both true to some extent. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a caricature to say that he is a thug. Uh he's he is a great statesman. He's not a positive person. Right. And exactly. That statesman. which is my point. Yeah. You know, I mean Stalin was, was a cannibal. I mean, he, he was a horrible. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a it was a version of Hitler, for sure. But at the same time, he was a great statesman and a great strategist. So Look, if we, we reach back in history, we're going to find out that a lot of people whose greatness came down to us were pretty nasty uh, pieces of work. Yeah. as was actually I, I, what I hear is Putin's um, idol is Peter the Great. Yeah. I mean, he, wa- he was a nasty guy. I mean, he was a nasty man. He was killing people right and left. But he was a visionary and, and he brought Russia out of the dark ages and he forced it into the West. Uh, into the Western mode, and and he left his imprint on Russian history and Russian destiny for many centuries to come. But he was a nasty individual. There's no question about it. So I don't think Putin is a positive human being in many ways. But but you see, this goes back to what Palmerston said. It, it, It really doesn't matter. We're not dealing with friends here. This is, this is like, you know, it doesn't matter whether you come to a, a competition with another company or whether it's in a business context or financial context. If you think the other guy is despicable, or woman, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. You're meeting them on a field of, of battle, and you have to prevail with the tools with which this is fought, period. Yeah. yeah, It has nothing to do with whether we like him or not, whether he's a nice guy or not. No, he's not a nice guy. No question
0: about that. Yeah, let's go back to the investment side, as the financial side of things, because um, you know this, this this situation does have a lot of moving parts, and it does affect many parts of the global financial system. And w- which you and I have talked about this at length in, 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 in between ourselves for for many many years, talking about the weaknesses in the financial system and the the inevitability of a reset of some sort. And and it feels as though that reset. Is getting closer by the day. Now we're really starting to see the weaknesses. We're starting to see the uh, the poor decisions of, of various central banks coming home to roost, and we're seeing it in the most vulnerable places of all with with food prices, essentially, and energy prices. So we are seeing that pressure ratchet up in terms of escaping from the, the really the absent military conflict. The one part of this where Russia has been vulnerable in the past, which is sanctions, which is the the, the SWIFT system, which is the whole US dollar-based financial system. Let's talk a little bit about the moves they've made to kind of mitigate that as a potential threat against them. So obviously, they've divested themselves of essentially all their holdings of US treasuries and, and largely switched that for gold. Um, they've made uh, alliances with Beijing in terms of payment systems that enable the two countries to transact between each other without using the US dollar. How close do you think the Russians and the Chinese, and for that matter, you know, Iran and Turkey and places like that, which are eyeing that, those little alliances quite keenly, how close do you think we are to, to a group of countries being able to successfully lift themselves out of this US dollar-centric financial system and stand apart, even if it's just for their own self-preservation rather than as a challenge to the United States?
1: Well, this is why we're having this conversation. I mean, because in the same uh, joint communique that with the uh China and Russia announced uh, a new financial system. They didn't announce any details, but they announced that they, they are working on implementing imminently, it sounded like, an uh, independent financial system that would be independent from the United States, would not use the dollar. I mean, this is why we're having this conversation. This is the problem right there. I mean, they—they they, they what are they going to do militarily? What is it going to start? Anybody's going to start a nuclear war? Nobody's starting a nuclear war. Neither Russia nor the West. Nobody's interested in starting a nuclear war. So what? So hybrid war. Uh, what's a hybrid war? Well, it, it, we're talking about sanctions. How about they impose sanctions? How about China already imposed sanctions on on uh, Lithuania? And so I just spoke to a friend of mine who who. An old friend, Michael, lives here in the United States, but he has a friend who's still in Russia who sells some products to China, and he's got two containers right now, this week, sequestered in China, uh, and the Chinese are not paying and, and demanding proof that there are no Lithuanian components to it, and they have their own sanctions. I mean, who, like, again, we're in the United States. Who cares about Lithuania? What is Lithuania? Uh, you know, container, Russian yeah. container in yeah. China, Lithuania, this is all totally esoteric, but, but it isn't. This is what's going on. I mean, and what if tomorrow Chinese, say, you know, impose sanctions on the U.S. And they, and they put tariffs and they say, well, you know, if you want to buy from us, you got to pay this way or you got to do that. I know it's inconceivable. I mean, it sounds really like ridiculous. But that's the problem. I'm sure it sounded ridiculous to people in the 19-teens or 20s or whenever that there would be a world war, that there would be the second world war yeah. and that... What happened in Nazi Germany would happen in Nazi Germany to Jewish people. What happened in the Soviet Union would happen to millions of uh, innocent uh, Soviet people. I mean, this stuff happens. I mean, it just happened. And we haven't learned any lessons of history. And when I say that the Soviet system lasted 62 years, I mean, the clock is running on us. That was a centrally planned system. We've had our stagnation now for 10 years. We may be heading into a Great Depression which is what taught the Soviet Union ended? I mean, we're seeing empty shelves, supply disruptions, prices, shrinkflation. It's not, listen, we're not starving. It's not like you go to the supermarket, there's nothing to eat. When there are empty shelves, maybe supermarkets should be smaller to begin with. Maybe this whole Christ. Walmartization of America with, with miles and miles of aisles of stuff that, you know, uh, 50 versions of every item that you can imagine, maybe we don't need, I mean, not maybe, we don't need that. Okay, for normal life, people don't need that. Maybe that's the excess, maybe of this overproduction of money and well,
0: and that that, and that, that becomes well, China's problem in a hurry if if we don't need that. But
1: and it does, and so this is a global crisis. And when there's a global crisis, as we just saw, and as Putin actually said in his speech, which is important, is that you would think that nations of the world would be united against a threat like a pandemic, which is non-political universal yeah. uh, you know it, it's a, it's a threat to health and life like what is more uniting for the humankind than something like that what we saw instead is a complete disarray where each nation went its own way and some nations did this and the other did that and uh, you know the, the borders were closed so instead of cooperating and coming up together with some solution for the, the like the world problem united world and where was the United Nations and all that? I didn't hear anything about it. So we shouldn't, like, we shouldn't confuse our preconceived notions of how things work or have worked for the past 30, 40, 50, 60 years yeah. with how they have worked before that, or how they may work in the future. That's really the problem. So I, I think that we, I, I would repeat what I said. I think we're in a very dangerous moment. I don't have an answer to any of these questions. I mean what did uh, Edward Morrow said if you're not confused you really don't understand the situation.
0: Right.
1: I mean I think I understand enough of the situation to be utterly confused. Everybody has an opinion there's going to be inflation there's going to be deflation the bonds are going to go up the fed's going to do this the fed's going to do that. I don't have any idea what yeah. anything's going to do you know well, we to get some of it all of it but we're going to get something and whatever that something is is going to be very negative and it's going to be very painful uh, on a macro sense, because we know what the problem is. We've overproduced debt. Every dollar of debt is somebody's asset. And if these debts cannot be repaid, then people who have these debts as assets on the books have overvalued assets on their books, period, in real terms. And who are these people? It's the people. It's the pension funds. It's the insurance companies. It's the 401ks. It's the savings. It's the asset management firms. I mean, it's the banks. It's everybody. Not to mention, not to mention the pandemic occurred six months into what you and I have discussed was probably probably still continues. We don't know. Nobody talks about It's the repo crisis, Mm -hmm. which was a collapse of the the shadow repo market. The Fed has pumped in trillions and trillions of dollars into that, and they continue to pump trillions of dollars. And they recently revealed a list of Of uh, banks who have received how much they receive in in these repo facilities. Astounding amounts of money. This is completely out of the press. This is like, I mean, public information, but nobody's talking about that. So I'm not too fast to judge whether banks are in good shape or in terrible shape, whether the economy is recovering or this is all a mirage of printed money. Why? Why try to figure out something that nobody knows? Why not just look at what we do know? Yeah, we, we do. We, we, what we're talking about is bad, is bad enough. I mean, the only reason you want to know what's happened next is you want to you want to put a trade on.
0: Well, yeah, which which which, which a lot of which a lot of people do, and that's that, that's 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 a big part of it, I guess. Well, look, um, I can't let you go without just getting uh, an update from you on on the gold market and we, you know I, I think you and i should have a longer conversation about gold another time and it's place in all this we've done that before many times but it'd be interesting to explore it again within the context of what's happened but but just just give people a sense because you know you're obviously you're in touch with refiners you're in touch with the miners you you get a sense of flows in the gold market because the price has confounded a lot of people in terms of what the gold price has done but just talk a little bit about what you've learned from, from the actors in the gold market as to, as to where it currently stands at the moment?
1: Well, I can tell you from personal first-hand experience is that there is no problem right now sourcing modest amounts of physical gold. But as soon as you ask for a larger amount of gold, and by larger amount, I mean, let's say, north of $10 million, it becomes very situational. Twice in the past year, I've ventured out there to buy amounts of that, you know, size, and on both occasions, it wasn't straightforward. On one occasion, I was actually, I had to look for it. The Swiss refinery that I went to first couldn't deliver it. Not because there's no gold in the world, it's spoken for. You know, I mean, they have contracts, forward contracts, they sold it yeah. to somebody. So they didn't have any. I, I did buy it in a different place, it wasn't a problem, but normally shouldn't have been a problem. The second time, again it was a problem. At that time, the refinery came up with it, and I didn't have to go to another refinery. But what I'm what I'm saying is, if you want to buy large quantities of physical gold, cash on the barrel, against you know delivery, immediate delivery, it's not always straightforward. Which tells me that there is liquidity, but if significant amount of money were to try to move into gold, as frankly we saw in uh, April, uh, March of twenty twenty there was a breakage in the comex market where they couldn't deliver. And the explanation was, well, wow, there's, there's no shortage of gold in the world. There's yeah, plenty right. of it in London. It's just in the wrong form. You know what? When I need to go to the bathroom and there's no toilet paper telling me that there's plenty of it in Topeka, Kansas doesn't help me here. <laughs> I mean, it just You're exactly stopped. right. So I think that the gold is not in abundant supply uh, in large quantities. I think it makes sense. The gold price went down last year. Simply because high yield bonds are trading at 4.5% yield with inflation at 7%. And they're flying off the shelves. So uh, the issuance of uh, bank loans, high yield bank loans and CDOs backed by those loans, I think was record uh, last year. So yep. it's not, it, it, so when people say, how can gold not be doing what it's supposed to be doing with this inflation? Gold is not a derivative instrument. It's not supposed to be doing anything. What's supposed to be is people, investors, usually have demand for an asset like gold, counterparty-free assets like gold, when they lose confidence in paper money. Despite everything we're seeing, investors have not lost confidence in paper money. So demand from investors, thats what, which is what drives gold price, Not infl- inflation dri- drives nothing related to gold. Nothing drives anything related to gold. It's supply and demand. So it's people who drive price of gold. And the reason it's so acute usually is because supply of gold comes from people too. I mean, whatever is taken out of the mines is only 1.5% of outstanding gold supply. I mean, of outstanding gold in the world. So whatever that couple of hundred billion dollars is for sale, which is not a lot of money in today's world. No, and right. the rest of it has to come from somebody who already owns it. Well, if it has to come from somebody who already owns it, then that somebody lost confidence, just like the person who lost confidence, which is why they want to buy gold. Well, it's not available. It's not available. It's available at some price, but it's not available at whatever today's yeah. price, yeah. you know, and where that price is discovery. I don't know. So what I'm saying is we live in a funny world where the biggest manipulation here is of confidence through the Fed tools, through monetary tools, through political means, through propaganda and other means. We are not seeing a run out of financial assets. And therefore, we're not seeing gold price reacting. But so I I don't trade gold. You know, of course, if you think of it as a speculative asset, then you're positioning it and so forth. If you see it as insurance, as sort of a reserve asset, which is how Russia and China see it, Mm -hmm. uh, then you're holding it, because you have a, either, either you have a conviction or you have a concern that confidence in uh, financial arrangements as they stand today is misplaced. Yeah. yeah, And if it is indeed misplaced, then gold is what you should own. And as we saw, by the way, speaking of cryptocurrencies along those lines, I mean, as we see their behavior in the last few weeks, I mean, clearly the correlation there is to confidence in stock market. More so than anything else So there's a lot of speculative money in, 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 in cryptocurrencies, which there isn't in gold. And so yeah. you, you have dynamics there that are very different from the gold dynamic. So, so to me, that's, the, the thesis is stronger than ever, And frankly, all these political things and tidings, bad tidings that you and I are talking about uh, it, it reconfirmed that, and the fact that Russia and China were essentially challenging uh, the United States aggressively today. In real time, uh, for the, not dominance over the United States, but for multipolarity, for parity, if you will, with the United States, uh, or a seat at the table, uh, they have placed their bet on, on gold. And they've been accused of a lot of things. Putin is being accused of a lot of things. Nobody said he was stupid. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, exactly I, right. and nobody said the sea was stupid. So, yeah, they may not be positive characters, but they're not stupid people. So, I, I I think they see the world a certain way. I think I understand how they see the world to some extent. Whether they will succeed, succeed or not, I don't know. But they have made their bets, and, and I think those are solid bets uh, in the financial sense. Uh, the dollar is not going to go away, just like Ruble didn't go after hyperinflation. Just like you know, Turkish currency isn't going away, and none of these. Guys, but the dollar may be very different, uh, and the role in the world may be very different, and the purchasing power may be very different. Those are the, you know, the world isn't ending. It's just going to be different. That's
0: all. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mate, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you. Um, I will, uh, I think we should put the vessel with the pestle and the flagon with the dragon in the container in Lithuania. I think we should just do that and be and be done with it.
1: I, but, um, I think that would be fantastic.
0: <laughs> mate, it's always so much fun to talk to you. Uh, I hope we get to see each other in person soon. But before we go, just um, let people that don't know where to find you know where to find you? Because uh, if they don't follow you already, they should. And um, you should tell them all about the Bullion Reserve and all the other good stuff you do.
1: Sure. BullionReserve.com is my website. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at S underscore Bikailovich. I mean, who can possibly write that down? But if you get to the BullionReserve.com website, there will be a link to uh, Twitter and then you can find me. And I I, I don't tweet every day these days because I don't have much to say every day. But when I have something to say, I say it. And that, and, and, then, and effectively, no, I'm not going to pollute, right? I'm not going to pollute your timeline with with explanations of what I'm doing this morning. Or no, where and, I am, and I've no.
0: never seen you tweet a cat video either, which is always a, a plus no,
1: no, no, don't do that.
0: All right, mate. Well, listen, great to talk to you, and uh, we will see each other in person very soon. I'm sure of it. Can't wait. All right, buddy. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. Simon is always someone who leaves me with plenty to think about. And this conversation, I have to say, was no exception. Now, it'll be interesting to watch what happens in the coming weeks as the political posturing increases and red lines are neared. Now, maybe cooler heads prevail. Maybe they don't. We'll see. But having Simon's level-headed assessment is something I always find invaluable. I'll be back with another conversation shortly. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening.